Welcome to the third episode of the Super Lily podcast. Today I am so excited to welcome Nicole Hilburn, who's an experienced paediatric physiotherapist and who we've been lucky enough to work with initially in South Africa and subsequently via Zoom. Nicole is maze therapy trained, something we will talk about quite a lot in the podcast. And she's passionate about combining her academic work with her approach to therapy in clinical settings. I think you're going to find Nicole's thought processes and approach quite refreshing and different from a lot of traditional physio. This is really one worth listening to. By way of a brief bio, prior to moving to the UK, where Nicole is working as an extended scope physiotherapist in the NHS, she had her own paediatric physiotherapy clinic in Johannesburg, South Africa, and has been a lecturer in paediatrics at the University of the Witwatersrand, which is also where she obtained her PhD. Nicole is passionate about her academic work, and her PhD thesis established a new standardized developmental screening tool uh, suitable for use in a developing country. To screen for neurodevelopmental delays, especially um, with children who had HIV-positive mothers, and to ascertain the need for further assessment or referral to rehabilitation services for them. She received her undergraduate training in physio at the University of Cape Town and has subsequently been trained in NDT and May therapy. Funnily enough, Nicole and I went to school together in Johannesburg. I won't tell you how many years ago. And were happily reunited last year in South Africa uh, when Nicole worked with Lily for about six weeks. During that period, not only did Lily make progress, but I personally learned so much about how to think about Lily's motor development and better ways in which we could support it. Nicole, a warm welcome to the Super Lily podcast. I've really been wanting to get you on it for ages, and it's very sweet of you to join me all the way from London, and uh, really great to have an opportunity to speak to you. So thank you very much for agreeing to join me. Pleasure, thank you. Nicole, maybe we can start um, quite broadly with you telling me a little bit about your key specialization and I guess your passion in working with pediatric patients. Yes, absolutely. So since studying, I've always loved pediatrics and I think that was probably my favorite rotation in, in university. I particularly loved working with children in outpatient settings just because they're well and they've got so much potential but there was a lot I felt I could do to help them achieve certain things. So after university I spent a year working at Baragwanath Hospital doing community service and I was very lucky to get six months of that time in pediatrics which was the deciding factor for me. So Straight after that, I went into pediatrics, working in a few different private practices in Johannesburg. And um, I saw children of all different ages with lots of different conditions, which just continued to spark my love and interest on this topic. I just find children are so rewarding to work with and all they want to do is play and interact. And being able to help someone to do that just to me seems to provide so much joy and access to their environments. And obviously, the other the other factor, which is very rewarding, is being able to help parents of children who are maybe struggling to do things. So, in short, that's that's how I ended up in Peds, and it's 
probably been about 20 years now. So it's definitely my passion. Well, I think you chose right 20 years ago. Lily responded so well to you when she came to you in Johannesburg. And certainly I've always found your guidance and advice extremely helpful and quite enlightening, actually. But Nicole, apart from practicing, you also have some pretty serious academic credentials and have lectured at FITS. Do you think your academic pursuits influenced how you approach your clinical work? Yes, absolutely. So, um, again, since since finishing community service, I've always held joint academic and clinical positions. And I, I feel um, that research definitely informs clinical practice. It's obviously, it drives evidence-based practice. And the way to evaluate outcomes is, is through doing research. Um, I've also found teaching students both in clinical settings and in, in theoretical ways has meant I've got to put together lectures and practical sessions with the latest evidence on different topics. So it's definitely kept me on my toes in terms of what the latest evidence is in, in pediatrics. I love attending conferences, so finding out what people are doing in different parts of the world, which maybe we don't have access to in whichever settings we're working in. Um, my own research has taught me how to access research and evidence, how to do literature, literature searches, and this has informed my own practice. So if there's something I maybe want to find out more about, I have the tools to be able to do that. Um, I also feel it helps me evaluate what, or sift through things, um, you know, which approaches may be more evidence-based. Is there any and what we're doing and um, how to evaluate that? And I think being a clinician, we've also got to be very careful not to grasp onto every new thing that comes along. So I feel research in academia helps me in, on this front in terms of new things that come along. Is this something which you know might be a fleeting craze, or is there is there something worthwhile behind this? So in that way, I feel trying to knit the academia and the the clinical side of things has been a really great balance for me. That's very interesting, in terms of the way it can give you the tools with which to assess, as you say, new ideas and new therapies and things that may come along. As an example. I know in your PhD work, you developed new screening tools for children born with HIV. How did that influence um, your clinical practice? Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, part of that research was using existing outcome measures and trying to figure out you know, what works in, in different settings. So firstly, I think it really helped me understand evaluating movement and development and children of different ages. Um, and in, in having to develop my own tool, I think it's just developing a really deep understanding of what are we trying to assess when, when somebody comes to us and what are the important factors in what we're trying to achieve with them in treatment. Um, there are also so many different outcome measures that you can use. So it, it's shown me we have to be very careful about what we are using to evaluate our, our outcomes in therapy because if we if we just base it on a score, we might miss some of the the quality changes or the small important things. So things like communication, 
play, that kind of thing. Um, so I think it's really just trying to develop a balance between what we know are solid outcomes and then using our intuition and probably our understanding of children's development and what we're trying to achieve in ensuring that the goals we're setting for children are measurable, but also that we don't miss some of the the beneficial outcomes of therapy, if that makes sense. Yeah, Nicole, yours has always been a very nuanced approach in my experience, if one could call it that. You know, Lily has seen a variety of specialists who do loads of assessments, and obviously I understand assessments are necessary sometimes, but I do often bristle when I feel that it's just a box-ticking exercise. Um, I guess that's a protective parent in me. Um, Whereas your approach or the way you think about Lily's therapy is always contextual. You always give context. You know, you talk about her prematurity and the sensory challenges that brings. It's not just about motor can and motor can't. And, uh, you know, the thing that really helped me a lot, actually, is also this idea of having an idea of how Lily feels in her body, how her body feels when she's trying to interact with her environment. And if I'm not mistaken, quite a lot of this comes from your training in maze therapy. Recently, I listened to a fascinating podcast where Jean-Pierre Mays was interviewed about his development of this approach. And having experienced his way of thinking through Lily's sessions with you, I think I have a bit more insight into how it works. But it's not always easily explained, and I guess he admitted as much in the podcast. So could you tell me more about how you came to be qualified in maze therapy, first of all, and then... You know, how you see the general philosophy or how it differs from quote-unquote traditional physiotherapy? Yes. Um, So I think on the path to becoming a a paediatric physiotherapist, particularly in South Africa, so I'm speaking from that context now, um, when once I'd qualified, the, the route to take in turning into sort of a paediatric therapist was to do the neurodevelopmental therapy course, which is an eight-week postgraduate course, and you immerse yourself in assessing and treating children with neurological difficulties. So I did that in 2006 and absolutely loved it. And South Africa's got very close links with the Bobath Centre in London. So very fortunately, we had a lot of Bobath tutors coming over from London to run more advanced courses for people who had done the basic course. And one of those tutors happened to be Jean-Pierre Mays. So I did, I think, two or three of his advanced NDT courses and absolutely marveled at the outcomes he achieved with the patients that we had on the course. Um, On those courses, you always have children to work with and you you get to see their their progress over over time and i just couldn't believe what what he he achieved with these with these kids um and interestingly under the ndt banner i didn't really always understand what he was doing with them or how it really fitted into to ndt or how to reproduce that myself um until actually he developed his own approach which is known as maze therapy um and he broke away from the Bobath Center and actually started teaching this approach of his under a separate name. 
And then it all made a lot more sense. Um, so just because I loved his courses under the NDT banner, loved the way he, he teaches, and more importantly, just the outcomes he achieved with his patients were incredible. I wanted to know more, try and learn some of this approach and achieve those outcomes with my own patients. So I did the, the maze course. So in terms of your question on what is the difference, um, it's quite a difficult thing to explain, obviously, as you've realized from the podcast and things you've listened to, but it's very, very different. So I think if we had to sort of pick the, the major, major difference, I would say NDT tries to make a child work harder to do something. So um, it's often about strengthening alignment um, taking them up and trying to sort of progress through not the developmental positions or or milestones, but you, you try and take them further than where they are at the moment. So, you know, if they're sitting, you try and get them moving um, and trying to, to progress them. Whereas if I had to sort of say what the difference with maze is, I think they, maze takes takes each type of, of neurological difficulty. And the, the main example used under these courses is cerebral palsy and tries to figure out what movement difficulties a child has and then use those to approach the treatment. And I think the biggest, biggest difference is rather than making the child work harder or taking them up, the idea is to get different and new movement. So he uses a lot of different ways of doing this and, and it's often actually keeping the child down and giving them more support in order to help them develop new patterns of movement, different ways of coordinating movement. And in that way, you actually get them to progress if that makes sense. So um, I think rather than trying to get more movement and by the child trying hard and taking them up, it, it, um, which is the way the NDT approach works, um, the maze therapy aims to improve the quality and the quantity of movement, but this is often by keeping them down, if that makes sense. Yeah, I guess it could sound a bit counterintuitive, but to me, in the way you've explained it in Lily's case, it's always made sense you know, giving her the chance at an easier level to find a good way of doing something, uh, creating helpful sequences of movement rather than, as you say, constantly trying to move her along the expected typical development trajectory. I wonder if we use Lily's case as an example, could you explain how May's techniques can be applied to help her? So we've often spoken specifically about Lily's sensory processing challenges and need for greater proprioceptive input. How does Maze think about these? Yeah, so interestingly, um, after doing all kinds of courses and using different ways of, of treating children, the, the one amazing benefit of Maze is that, as far as I know, it's the only approach I've come across, which actually separates out the child who was preterm and has a whole separate way of approaching somebody who's struggling from a neuro neurological perspective but has a background of prematurity. And this is because of the, the sensory challenges that, that prematurity presents with. Um, so I think, obviously, you as a parent are aware, but the challenges of, of being premature from a sensory perspective are enormous. And I think 
influence the child's movement more than any of us understand. So what May's therapy does for a child who was preterm is takes this into account and actually structures the treatment very much around those sensory challenges. And um, I think one of the biggest factors with, with being premature is, is sensory processing. So under the May's banner for a child who was prem, one of the big difficulties is the sense of knowing where you are in space and knowing that internally um, versus having to use everything around you to get that that processing going. So I think this is this is one of the biggest factors in treating somebody who is premature using May's therapy and trying to develop that internal sense of processing in a whole lot of different ways through using techniques that, that Jean-Pierre Mays has developed and try and help them not to have to use the environment and external factors to know where they are in space, which then would mean they are very dependent on things like their base of support, what kind of sounds and other things are going on around them, which would then influence their sensory state and in turn influence their movement. So I think, you know, if we go back to a more traditional physio, which, you know, I'm going to call it NDT just because I think that's what people are probably more familiar with, um, where, where NDT looks at things like alignment and motor skills um, and breaks them down into components to try and achieve certain skills. Um, what that doesn't take into account in somebody who is premature is that they're actually terrified to move from one base of support to another. And if there isn't any any support, you know, either they won't move, which gives us the idea that, uh, you know, that they maybe are further behind than we think they are, or they really struggle to achieve what we're trying to get them to do if we don't understand what is difficult for them. So what May's therapy does for the child with neurological difficulties who was preterm is actually gives that support initially so that they can help, so, so that the child can relax, um, learn to move without the need to stiffen up because they're scared to, to transition from one external base of support to another and they don't have to worry about where they are in space because some of the techniques we use with maze therapy give them that sense and in in doing this amazingly the child is is happier to move starts to use different ways of moving and you can gradually reduce that that external support because they're starting to develop a sense of of where they are in space and this internal processing and you suddenly get more movement, a whole lot more skills coming through and that the child actually develops different ways of, of moving. Um, and this is this is really through looking very, very much at the, the sensory side of things and not just focusing on the motor side. Um, and Robs, you'll know from, from the last session we had um, that I think the other thing which I really hadn't thought about before I did the maze course was the choice of toys in the session, the environment that you're working with the child in, um, because these are all sensory types of sensory input, which can really impact the child's state and their ability to then move in different ways. Um, and yeah, I think my practice was filled with toys, with lights and 
music and all kinds of very, very stimulating things, which I, I now realize um, actually changes what, what type of sensory output the child is giving because they are very, very stimulated by these things and they can't let go of that, that sensory input. So I've also realized that when we're looking at motor output, we need to consider everything about the sensory system. So what base of support the child has, you know, if they have an idea of where they are in space and the external sensory stimuli like visual stimulation and auditory stimulation. And all of that helps to create an environment where you've got more optimal sensory processing so that the child is free to develop new ways of moving. It's so, so interesting, Nicole, and it really makes a lot of sense to me. You know, I'm beginning to see it uh, work, I suppose. Uh, an example of something that's happened quite recently is not so much movement, but Lily's improved ability to sit, which is happening in the bath. And it makes so much sense because there her base of support is clear. She can sense where she is in space because, um, or she can define it because she has the front and two sides of the bath, which she can touch. And maybe the water provides some buoyancy and proprioceptive input, who knows. But I've always found this idea of giving her the ability to reference externally where she is because her sensory system struggles to it internally, very powerful. And uh, the other point you make about toys is increasingly important for Lily. Oh my goodness, as she becomes more independent and exercises her toddler will with confidence, if she does get into one of these sensory loops, maybe with a very stimulating toy, lights flashing or gaudy recordings of nursery rhymes over and over, she gets so cross. So that if you move that toy, instead of motivating her to go and get it, she stiffens up and she's unable to do the, to do, to do the movement. So we're having to think quite cleverly about new toys to motivate her with. And then finally, the other piece, I think, which is very much um, Maze's way of thinking, is this idea, create the supports around her, help or facilitate the first part of a movement, but then wait and let her figure it out. Um, I guess we're trying to teach her brain. And sometimes, whether in therapy or at home, you almost just help her go through the whole motion. But that doesn't teach her anything, does it? I mean, that was something that Jean-Pierre Maze was saying in the Wired on Development podcast is... You take it halfway there and let them figure it out. We're training the brain, not the muscles. So I think that speaks very much to motor learning. And if if the movement is done for you and you, you don't have to do anything yourself or you maybe don't have to figure out the next part of your movement or whatever you're about to do, you don't form that connection. So... You know, it's like sport or music or any skill that you practice and you improve. You you improve because you keep using that pathway and you strengthen it. But firstly, it's about strengthening the pathways we want to and not keeping on going down pathways that, that are, are not helpful. And secondly, it's about the action of of doing the movement or the activity that actually creates that new pathway. And in turn, that's what allows you to develop different movement, which is why active approaches are so much more effective than things being done to or for people who are struggling with movement. Because yeah. in doing that movement themselves, they have to create a new pathway in their brains. 
Honestly, the brain is a truly miraculous thing that we know so little about still. All I can say is that Lily has responded so well to all the different elements of maze that you describe. And unfortunately, there don't seem to be any active maze-trained therapists in Hong Kong. So come on, Hong Kong. Sign up, sign up. We highly recommend this approach. Right, now, Nicole, you're quite academically oriented, and I like to think about how we can optimize all the interventions that Lily can get. Um, and I'd love to hear from you what you think the major and most impactful new areas of research and discovery in neurorehabilitation will be, and that we and other parents should be on the lookout for. Absolutely. So I think I think the, the word probably has to be the the development of of technology and which enables us to maybe understand these things better. So, um, for example, things like brain imaging have evolved hugely over time. And there's a fairly new type of brain imaging which has come out in the last little while, which is called diffuse tensor imaging. And this actually allows you to see the pathways and connections in somebody's brain. So I, I think this, this might be a really useful way of evaluating different therapeutic approaches. Um, firstly, maybe understanding what connections people with conditions like cerebral palsy do and don't have compared to somebody who maybe moves more typically. And then using that to evaluate what different therapies do. So, you know, if somebody looks like they're achieving better movement or new movement skills, what is it in their brain that has changed? Um, which parts of the brain have we worked on? And maybe giving us more answers to those qu kinds of questions. Um, the other type of useful imaging, which is starting to be used in a lot of research is functional MRI. So as somebody moves, you can actually see which parts of the brain they're using. So the, the diffuse tensor imaging is probably more of a static thing so that you can see what's actually there and what isn't. And then functional MRI, you can see is being used while someone's speaking, moving, thinking, using different emotions. Um, so again, if that could be used in, in a, a research-based way to try and determine what we need to work on or you know what we've improved or maybe where we still need to work, I think those those features would really, really inform us a lot. And and I think inform us on, on which approaches may be helpful or what components of different approaches, approaches may be helpful. Because I think also there's not one approach that's perfect for, for everybody. And I think as a clinician and a therapist, I find myself drawing on different, different approaches every now and then, um, sometimes my own intuition, past experience, and really trying to match that to an individual. And um, there's a very useful uh, resource in Canada, which is um, the Can Child website. And um, it's headed up by somebody called Peter Rosenbaum, who's done the most amazing research in cerebral palsy. But one of his biggest things is, is no individual with cerebral palsy is the same. So you can't treat two people the same. Um, you have to individualize your, your approach. Um, and I think probably the other the other really useful area in terms of technology is the advent of, of telehealth and telemedicine. So I think what that will do is firstly, um, you know, I think over COVID, all of us had to try and adapt to virtual sessions, um, which was quite a mind shift. But what that will enable is 
people all over the world to access different approaches that may not be available in their in their setting. And I think therapists are getting better at delivering therapy in that way. So it may not look like the traditional hands-on therapy, but I think there's a lot you can achieve in terms of passing on information, assessing how somebody moves, trying to isolate what what parts of an approach may may be helpful. And I think the other really beneficial thing is being able to see somebody in their own home because in an outpatient setting, a child comes to our practice, we get to use all the stuff we have there, but it doesn't mean to say that you can adapt that to a home setting. So I think it really also gives a snapshot of, you know, what do they have available? What does their environment look like? Being able to advise around that side of things and and maybe really give a lot of nice input on setting things up so that they can achieve a lot during their playtime and being at home um, to bring in the components you're trying to achieve in therapy. I do like this idea of introducing components of therapy into play and daily life. I think this is something that is promoted by Can Child's F-words in Childhood Disability, which, if I remember, are function, family, fitness, fun, friends, and future. And really, they're about incorporating all these things into daily living with CP. You know, she doesn't wear them full-time yet, but we've started to put Lily's AFOs on in the playground so that she can practice her stepping while playing with the outdoor abacus that she loves so much. It's infinitely more motivating than moving a toy across a bench in a clinical setting. Wow, this has been such a great conversation. I know that everyone who listens is going to learn so much. As you know, Nicole, Super Lily is a resource for parents, and as such, I always ask my interviewees for some parental advice. You've worked in a variety of settings, from public to private clinics and in the developing and developed world, you know, around the world and in different circumstances, it can sometimes be difficult for parents to access and to afford the myriad of interventions offered for children with global delay. If you could give parents three key tips in terms of making the best of what they do manage to access, what would those be? Yeah, so I think uh, it's a really important point. And, you know, I think um, my first tip would be to trust your gut. I think as a parent, you know your child best of all. And if you feel that the approach or the setting that you're in isn't working or it's not achieving what you know what what you hoped it would, or maybe just not as much or what you feel could be there for your child, um, I think just keep searching. So, you know, I think um on this first point, any any health professional will tell you that that a parent's gut instinct is incredibly strong, and a parent should always trust their their, their gut feeling. So, yeah, I think just just keep advocating, keep searching, and you know, I think um, make sure that you, you firstly understand and secondly are comfortable with with what you are embarking on with your child, because I think so much of therapy requires family involvement and you know there needs to be that that trust in the process in order to achieve the results you're wanting to um i think the second the second thing i would say is keep on reading i mean you're you're an amazing example of this where you've done so much of your own research and reading and you've stumbled across 
all the right things, you know, I think um, all the research and all the, the networks and forums that, you know, most therapists would recommend, and you've, you've done this largely on your own. Um, but I think the biggest thing is choose sensible networks and support groups. Um, I think the problem with technology and social media and whatever is actually there's access to a lot of stuff which may be unhelpful or is also not really evidence-based. Um, and I think it's just to know in terms of conditions like things, uh, you know, cerebral palsy, any kind of developmental difficulties with children, there's no quick fix. It's you, And I think I mentioned earlier, passive approaches are not shown to be very, very helpful. So, you know, I think there's a lot on offer where, you know, you can, you can have the surgery or you can take this medication and everybody hopes that will fix the problem. But actually, I think in terms of evidence-approached um, therapy and what may be most beneficial, it's actually, it's a, it's a long, hard, hard journey. But on the other hand, you know, I think often a very rewarding and positive journey when you, when you find the right balance. So, um, you know, I think movement and develop, development happens through doing things. And it's really just that parents surround themselves with sensible support and correct information and, and not, you know, try very hard not to just latch onto the first thing that, that they happen upon that sounds like it might be a nice, quick, easy route to sort things out. Um, and I think on, on the previous point that we've just discussed, um, I find, so my third tip is, I think the greatest changes in therapy happen when, when it's carried over into the home environment and it becomes part of their day. And I think in my experience, lots of parents rely on the therapy sessions in the week as, you know, we've done this, okay, that's fine. We've been to physio, we've been to OT, we've been to speech therapy, and then, you know, home sort of, um, home is a, a whole different environment. And I certainly would recommend trying to mimic what is being worked on in therapy in the home environment and that becomes part of the child's play and part of their day rather than being seen as extra exercises to do outside of whatever else they may be doing. So to me, the greatest changes will happen when there's carryover and the activities or components that you're working on are actually part of their, their daily routine. And I think that has the greatest chance of success. And it's because of the whole motor learning theory where you keep on reaffirming the pathways and the connections that you want. And in that way, you can make big changes. I think this is great advice. And, you know, it's not always that easy or practical, I must say, but I think it can be much more motivating for young children. Because what it does when you incorporate these components into their everyday activities is make them more functional. And this is something that our physio, uh, Jess Tui, here in Hong Kong always talks about is having a functional approach so that what they're, being, what they're learning to do, how they're learning to move, can actually be useful in their daily lives. Gosh, Nicole, thank you so much for sharing all your insight and expertise with me today. It has been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Robs, and thanks for inviting me to chat to you and just for being such an amazing advocate for children who need a bit more help and input. And, you know, I think your Super Lily resource is 
a really, really fabulous one and a, a wealth of information for for parents and for therapists, just because I think it really gives a lot of insight into being a parent of a child with some additional needs, which is very, very important for therapists to bear in mind because um, it's not about what we want for the child. It's also looking at the child as part of a, a family. Um, so thank you for setting that up and giving us insight into, into that side of things too. Oh, well, that's a wonderful endorsement. Thank you so much. I love especially that you've called it a, a resource um, because that's exactly what I hope it can be, as you say, for parents and families, but even therapists and medical specialists too. To listeners, you can find links to any of the technical terms of the types of therapy we have discussed in the transcript for this podcast, which you'll find on the SuperLily blog, www.super-lily.org. So you can read more about any of the issues if you'd like to. Do go and have a look. Also, please feel free to share the podcast with friends, family, networks, whatever it may be. It would be wonderful to grow Super Lily's following and to be able to bring a parent's perspective to others who may really benefit from it. In the meantime, stay tuned for another episode of the Super Lily podcast, hopefully coming sometime soon. Stay safe, stay healthy. Goodbye.